Good morning again. Well, it's great to be here. I feel like I'm echoing. Maybe you don't hear that. Am I echoing? Yeah, it was a little loud. There we go, there we go. Well, I'm glad to be here this morning. This is a very early meeting for me. My, my body is in Ireland right now, and maybe it's not early. I just feel, what would be the word to describe what I'm feeling right now? Let's see, discombobulated. That would be the word. I don't think my body knows what time it is right now, but it sure feels like it's the middle of the night. Does anybody else feel like that? Okay, just one person. The rest of you are just alive and ready to go. Well, let's just begin with a word of prayer and then we'll launch right in. Father in heaven, Lord, we approach you this morning with an eager interest in your heart. We want to know who you are, how you think, how you feel, the kind of person that you are, Father. We want our trust for you to grow and to deepen because of what we see revealed of you in Jesus Christ. Father, bring peace and rest to our relationship with you so that our Sabbath keeping week by week would truly be restful in our souls, Lord, in our hearts. We want to know you more clearly so that we can serve you more passionately, more intelligently. Help us to that end in Jesus' name, amen. We spent our time yesterday basically talking about the fact that Jesus came to this world for a very specific purpose. We, we pretty much narrowed it down. We drew upon the theme for ASI this year, it's time to be what? About our Father's business. Which immediately begs the question, as we said yesterday, what is the Father's business that we need to be about? And we took note of the fact that this theme title is drawn from the words of Jesus as a 12-year-old boy, no less when he made his visit to the first Passover feast and he encountered the mysterious ceremony of the sacrifice of the lamb, became engrossed in that sacrifice and began to realize with greater clarity his identity and mission as the savior of the world. Of course, he then went on to engage with the scholars in the temple and Mary and Joseph lost their little boy Jesus and when they had finally recovered him he simply and profoundly said to them don't you know I must be about my father's what business and then we saw in scripture that the business of Jesus that he came to our world to undertake is the lofty and wonderful business of magnifying the character of God. The life of Jesus was, we might say, an unfolding of God's identity. The way God thinks, the way God feels, the way God behaves, the kind of person that God is. We recalled yesterday that everything that Jesus is doing is occurring 
on a very, very particular stage of events. There is something that has gone before him. There has been a rebellion in heaven among the angels. And that rebellion has now come to earth. And the entire great controversy, the great war between good and evil we mentioned yesterday is based on misrepresentations of the character of God by the father of lies. The fall of mankind was premised upon receiving ideas, concepts, perceptions that were skewed and distorted regarding the identity of the creator of the universe. Adam and Eve did not sin. They did not rebel in a vacuum. They rebelled on the premise of a misconfiguration of the character of God. First, before the act of disobedience was engaged in, before Eve reached out her hand to take the fruit and perform the act of disobedience and rebellion, something had changed in her heart. Trust was broken. She believed what the serpent told her regarding the character of God. And once trust was broken, the natural follow-through was rebellion on the behavioral level. So the sin problem obviously needs to first and foremost be rectified and corrected on the level of the heart. We sometimes call this the new covenant. What is the difference between the new covenant and the old covenant? Well, there are historic differences in the unfolding narrative of scripture, but there are also experiential differences between old and new covenant. The old covenant is essentially the idea that the law of God is imposed from without in order to merit or to gain God's favor in response, his response to our obedience. Whereas the new covenant, by contrast, is the law of God being realized as the principle of other-centered love within, which then manifests itself in outward obedience. Jesus came to achieve, to establish the new covenant in the hearts and minds of human beings, to clear up the misconceptions regarding the character of God that broke trust and gave rise to behavioral problems, behavioral misdemeanors and rebellions. Now, when we looked at the life of Jesus yesterday, we noticed through the Gospel of John that step by step, incrementally, one event after another, one interaction after another, Jesus was simply every step of the way revealing the character of God. He said in a summary statement to his disciples, if you have seen me, you have what? Seen the Father. And then in John 17, Jesus defined what he was up to, his business, as work that he had now finished. You remember he said to the Father in John 17, Father, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. This is the business that Jesus was about. It is called later in scripture, or earlier in scripture actually, as we'll see later in our message, it is called not only the business of Jesus and the work of Jesus, but Isaiah 53 calls it the labor of his soul. Jesus underwent something on our behalf 
that was perfectly calculated to reveal the character of God with unprecedented clarity. And that climactic, clarifying event was the cross of Calvary. Jesus pouring out his life with absolute, other-centered, self-giving love revealed the truth about God beyond all shadow of a doubt. Ellen White wraps language around the cross event like this. She says, at the cross, love and selfishness stood face to face in mortal combat and love gained the victory. Jesus at Calvary gave us a clarifying revelation of the character of God. Now the cross, which was the pinnacle of his business, of his work that he finished, the cross in Christian theology is sometimes referred to as the passion. Now think about this language with me for just a moment. In this particular context, the word passion, the passion of Christ, is referring to the extreme mental and emotional and physical agony, anguish, suffering, what Ellen White calls the sufferings of Christ. This suffering that Jesus endured was not merely of a physical nature. And this gives us a window into the magnitude of the sacrifice that was made on our behalf as we're about to discover. The physical dimension of the sufferings of Christ, which has been magnified in general Protestant and evangelical preaching on the cross, was actually the minimal part of his suffering. The physical torture, Ellen White very insightfully says, was by comparison to his mental anguish as it were nothing. Jesus endured something in his mind, in his heart. He underwent a degree, a magnitude, an enormity of mental and emotional suffering that eclipsed, that, that completely transcended physical suffering. Ellen White goes so far as to say in volume two of the testimonies, 200 to 215, called The Sufferings of Christ, that chapter, she says that his mental agony was of such intensity that his physical pain was hardly felt. Her words, not mine. So Jesus, as he hangs between heaven and earth, is giving a revelation of the character of God, of the love of God, by the suffering that he is enduring, that he is undergoing at Calvary. And we're going to spend our time together this morning exploring the passion, the suffering that Jesus endured for no other reason but love of your soul and mine. Now the prophet Hosea is a great window, a launching pad, if you will, into our discovery of the passion of Jesus Christ. Hosea is a unique prophet among prophets, you will have to agree, right? All the other prophets received visions and dreams, right? This is kind of what we might call secondary knowledge. It's not experiential in nature. It's a vision. It's a dream. It's a metaphor. It's a set of symbols. You see it in your mind, and then the prophet comes out of vision, 
out of the dream and simply writes down what he saw in the vision, right? But not Hosea. God did something different with the prophet Hosea. He said, Hosea, I'm not going to just give you a prophecy. I'm going to make you a prophecy. I'm going to ask you, Hosea, to enact my passion, to live out and experience before my people and before the world down through time that will reveal what's going on in my heart, in my mind, in the divine psyche, if you will. What is God experiencing in this great controversy between good and evil? So God said, Hosea, this is gonna be a tough one, but I have a mission for you. Hosea chapter one, verse two. As the book begins, the Lord said to Hosea, go, take yourself a wife of harlotry, For the land, that is the people of the land, has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So so here at the onset, God is revealing to us through Hosea that he is undergoing what we might call relational pain. God is saying, Hosea, I want you to personally as a human being experience something that will be, as it were, a living type of what I'm experiencing as God with the people, with the land. The land has rebelled against me. The human race has violated the covenant of other-centered love that should exist between myself and my people. Hosea, I want you to fall in love with a woman who commits adultery. Later on in chapter three and verse one, God reiterates this theme. He says, go again, Hosea, love a woman. Do what, everybody? Love her. Love a woman who is, here's the difficult part, here's the relational angst that God is going through. Here's here's the violation, the deep violation that we call the sin problem that is depicted in relational terms here. Go again, Hosea, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery. Now notice the next two words after the comma. Just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel. Hosea, see that woman there, that unfaithful woman, that woman who has a wandering, rebellious heart? Lord, I want you to fall in love with her, specifically her, Hosea. And once you have fallen in love with her, once you love this woman, Hosea, it's going to be a tough experience because she's going to pursue one illicit affair after another. And Hosea, when you feel what it feels like to love somebody with every fiber of your being, only to have her not love you in return, tell my people that this is just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel. Hosea, feel what it feels like to be violated on this deep relational level. Feel what it feels like, Hosea, to love her and not be loved back and then tell the world that that's what the sin problem looks like from God's perspective. That God feels 
the sin problem, not as merely the breaking of rules on cold tables of stone, but God feels the sin problem as the violation of a passionate, other-centered love that has given everything and received only rebellion in return. Hosea, that's what it feels like to be God. Tell them. Now, of course, sin is the breaking of the law. Sin is transgression of the law, 1 John 3, 4. But we need to remember something about that law. Before that law existed on tables of stone given at Sinai, that law existed as the tender inner reality of the character of God. Sometimes we say it this way at Seventh-day Adventist, we say the law is a transcript of God's, and so it is. Romans chapter 13 and verse 10, the apostle Paul cuts to the chase and he says, love does no hurt, no harm to its neighbor, to anybody. Love does no harm to anybody. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. The law of God is the love of God manifested in a codified form. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. That law is love. It is essentially what other-centeredness looks like in action, relationally. And God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have known this love, this other-centered law, this principle of self-giving love. They have known this for all eternity past as the very essence of their being, of their identity. This is how God operates. This is how God thinks and feels and behaves. God is love in the most extreme, other-centered sense imaginable. He literally never has an inward-focused thought or feeling. God always thinks and feels and emotes and behaves with outward reference to others. And this finally led to Calvary. Calvary is the ultimate manifestation of what it looks like for God to love all others above and before himself. To use the words of Ellen White, in Desire of Ages, she says of Jesus as he's trembling in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, she says that Jesus has come to a decision. His decision is made, quote unquote. He will save humanity at any cost to himself. And oh, the cost. It would cost him everything, not merely a few hours of physical agony and pain, but an eternity of weight, of separation from the Father that he felt to the depths of his being with no sense that the gulf would be bridged. It was literally blocked from his awareness that there would be a resurrection from the death in which, into which he was sinking. And for a sustained period of time, as we're about to discover, Jesus felt to the depths of his being what it feels like to be completely relationally severed. In other words, he felt the sin problem. In all its totality, Jesus felt what it feels like to be separated from the source of life.
And every step of the way, he chose you and me over not just his own present tense life in the physical dimension of the suffering. Jesus chose your eternal life over his own eternal life. He chose you over himself with a love that had no boundaries, no ceiling, no floor, no edges. Jesus proved beyond all question that God is love in the most beautiful sense we could possibly ever conceive. And Hosea is the medium as a living enactment in his life of what it feels like to be God in this great controversy. Hosea, having now modeled this in his life, God now tells Hosea, we loop back, we've gone to chapter one, then chapter three, now we're back in chapter two, and God now having this sin problem on his hands, follow carefully, he has a rebellious human race on his hands. What is he going to do about it? How's he going to, quote unquote, save us? How's he going to achieve atonement, oneness? How's he going to bring back the integrity of the relationship? Well, he's almighty God, as we noted yesterday. He could, I guess, hypothetically, although it's contrary to his character, but hypothetically, he could just pull rank and exert the sheer might and muscle of his almighty omnipotence. He could say, listen, you're a race of rebels, I'm God, you're not, basic arrangement, do what I say or else. But that would immediately, that kind of exertion of power would immediately circumvent the ultimate objective of who God truly is. He's only interested in a love that is rendered voluntarily from the heart because we want to, not because we had better or else. And so God won't exert himself in the plan of salvation with coercive, manipulative power to force himself. Revelation depicts him in chapter three standing on the outside of the human heart, knocking. Behold, I stand at the door and knock the implication of the imagery is that this door is shut bolted and locked from the inside and God is on the outside knocking gentlemen that he is and that is an understatement because of the deep ontological reality that he created human beings with free will so that they would have the capacity for love and that free will that creates the capacity for voluntary love is the highest perspective that God has taken on you and me. He looks at you and me and he sees us for what we are by original creation, free moral agents who have the possibility, the potential, the dignity of voluntarily saying yes to a relationship that we commit to because we want to. And he says to you and me, he says, so, so I don't want you to be my servants, my slaves. I want you to be my friends. I didn't come to this world to strong arm you into subjection. I came into this world to achieve your salvation by higher principles, by loftier aims. And so Hosea, back in chapter two, this is gonna blow your mind. God, this is God speaking. This is the almighty creator of the universe, the person who possesses omnipotence. And this omnipotent God tells us exactly the means by which he will go about saving us. 
Therefore, behold, he says to Hosea and to us through Hosea, behold, I will, what's the word there? Say it out loud. It'll be uncomfortable for you to say this word, especially in a theological context, but go ahead and say the word. It's in the Bible. Behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and I will speak comfort to her. Another version says, I will speak words of love or wooing words. Drawing words, attractive words. I'm going to relate to her, that is the fallen human race and all its rebellion and relational violation. I'm going to relate to the human race to save her, to save the human race on the premise of alluring, not by contrast, coercion or force. The word allure here is not used at all in the illicit sense of creating an enticement that's illegitimate. It simply means to attract. God is saying, I'm going to save them by attracting them back to me. I'm going to put forth a beautiful revelation of my love for them that will in turn produce a response to me that's voluntary. I'm going to allure them back to me. Now it's interesting because Hosea goes on. And this is chapter 2 of Hosea. This is verse 14. It's prophetic of the cross of Christ, as we're going to see in a moment. Jesus himself constitutes the ultimate allure, the ultimate draw, the ultimate attractive force that God exerts for the salvation of human beings. But here in verse 14, he says, okay, I'm going to save the human race by alluring them, by attracting them to me with love, okay? Then notice this, verse 16. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me, ah, my husband, and you will no longer call me my master. Here God is contrasting two kinds of relationship. Here God is saying, when you encounter the alluring beauty of my love for you in Christ, you will undergo a deep psycho-emotional paradigm shift you will cease to relate to me as a, as a slave relates to a master and you will begin to relate to me as a bride, as a wife relates to a husband. Now, of course, a good marriage is assumed here in this imagery, right? Don't make the immediate dysfunctional crossover from whatever you're going through, okay? The point here is that marriage as marriage is intended to be Marriage as God designed it to be, in which there is this, this kind of this awe at the other person and this upturned face, not this downturned posture of, okay, okay, I'll do what you say because of authority and power that you have over me. No, no, no. God says, when you see the alluring love of the Savior, you will cease to relate to me like a slave relates to a master. All of that fear will subside and give way to a whole new motive of existence. You will begin to see me as a loving husband and you'll begin to love me back. This is the new covenant in beautiful form relationally. When that allure occurs, he goes on and it's kind of a divine proposal. This is also in chapter two going on. You'll cease to relate to me as a 
a master and you'll begin to relate to me as a husband and then God kind of gets on bended knee before you and me. And he says, I will betroth you to me. I will betroth you to me forever. That's the seal of God ultimately achieved. That's the new covenant irrevocably achieved in the final atonement. This is God saying that there's going to be a marriage between human beings and the divine heart that will be sustained forever. Rebellion and unfaithfulness won't ever enter into the relationship again once God achieves this. And I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And the word here is yada in the Hebrew. It is the very word that was employed in Genesis when the Bible says Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and brought forth a son. It is the word that is used in scripture for matrimonial intimacy. And God is using it here as a metaphor, as a symbol for the kind of atonement, the kind of union, the kind of oneness that he anticipates and longs for and desires between himself and his people. God essentially says here, I want you to marry me. Will you? And he awaits. The whole plan of salvation is God putting forth the alluring beauty of his love and waiting for our response to the proposal. Will you marry me? And he's waiting for you and me to say, yes, I love you back. Let's seal this relationship forever. No turning back. Well, this is a compressed, Hosea is what I'm going to call a compressed prophecy of the cross of Christ and its ultimate effect as it will be brought to completion in the Day of Atonement. Hosea is a prophecy that traverses the entire ground of Jesus dying at the cross as the fulfillment of the allure of God's love. And the ultimate response of God's people, individually, yes, down through history, but finally on a corporate level, in the final atonement, in the sealing, God will have a composite bride, if you will, a people, we sometimes say, that is described in Ephesians 5 and in Revelation, where it says that that the bride of Christ has made herself ready. And the language there, the bride of Christ, is the corporate body of God's end time church who finally, as a unit, constitutes a love relationship with God that is beautiful and attractive for the world and invites guests to the wedding to behold our union with the maker of the universe. So Jesus comes to the world, following through with this matrimonial symbolism. Follow it carefully. When Jesus then is incarnate, Hosea made his prophecy. God is going to put forth some kind of amazing allure. Then Jesus comes to the world. And when he comes to the world, the disciples of John the Baptist are saying, hey, hey, who is this guy and who are you? We thought you were the guy, but now he's kind of eclipsing you. Aren't you the one? 
John the Baptist? And John responds to those who had been following him, and he essentially says, no, I'm not the one. He's the one. And then John wraps language around the identity of this one who has come. He is the bridegroom, John says, and I'm just the best man. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. It's him you need to now turn your attention to. I came merely to proclaim that he was going to arrive. Well, now he's here. You need to focus your attention on Jesus because he's the bridegroom and I'm just the best man and I'm just pointing to him. So the matrimonial metaphor is now initiated in the ministry of Christ. Jesus has come into the world as a lover seeking his love. He has come into the world with a mission to allure the human heart back to himself. And so from this point forward through the Gospels, the life of Jesus is a wooing process. Step by step, as we discovered in different language yesterday morning, Jesus is putting forth beautiful revelations of the character of God in order to elicit a response. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is like I am. I am like he is. All the goodness and love that you see in me is a reflection of who he is. Come back, come back, come back to the Father. The things you've believed about him aren't true after all. And I'm proving to you in my incarnation, my life, my teaching, and ultimately my death, I am demonstrating to you in what we might call the Christ event, the whole event of his incarnation, life, teachings, death, ascension, and his heavenly ministration, Jesus is demonstrating the love of God with unprecedented clarity so that when we come to John chapter 12 and verse 32, Jesus, talking about the cross, says, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will do what? I'll draw all peoples to myself. The allure is going to be exerted with gentle beauty that preserves the dignity of our freedom by not pushing, not shoving, not demanding, not coercing, but drawing. I will allure you to myself, and here's the allure. Ellen White wraps language around this verse around this concept that is just amazing language. She speaks of the cross event, listen, as the matchless charms of Christ. In another place, she refers to what happened here as matchless love. That is love that is without match. It has no parallel in all of reality or any experience or relationship we've ever had. This is a love according to the Song of Solomon and it too is a prophecy of the Messiah. This is a love that is stronger than death. This is a love that sets its heart upon the likes of you and me with a determination to save us at any cost to himself. It's stronger than the fear of death. Jesus puts forth the allure the drawing power of his love as he hangs between heaven and earth on the cross. And then, as I said, the prophecy of Hosea is a compressed prophecy of the cross and then its ultimate effects 
individually, but then corporately at the end of time. John chapter 17 is what Ellen White calls the day of atonement prayer of Jesus. In other words, when Jesus is praying in John 17, just before the cross, anticipating the cross, he is anticipating beyond the cross to its ultimate effects down to our time in what we call the day of atonement and the final achievement of union between God and human beings. This is a prayer that refers to 1844 and beyond in a very specific sense. This is the day of atonement. You and I are living in the antitypical day of atonement. And Jesus, before he went to the cross, prayed a day of atonement prayer. And notice the language of this prayer. This is eternal life, Jesus said, praying to the Father. That they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Again, using the language of matrimonial intimacy. Adam knew his wife, even she conceived. Jesus now takes that language, moves it into the New Testament, and gives it the spiritual connotation of salvation and atonement. Eternal life is to know God with intimacy. Spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, to intersect with God in complete union. This is the plan of salvation. Jesus goes on in his prayer and he uses the language of atonement and oneness and matrimonial union. I do not pray for these alone, Jesus says, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be, what's the word he uses? One, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus is praying for atonement, for oneness. He's, he's, again, reaching back into Genesis where scripture had said that the man and the woman were married. God performed that first marriage ceremony and the Bible had said that the two shall become one flesh. Jesus reaches back and he grabs that oneness language of matrimonial intimacy. He brings it into the New Testament and he says, that's what I want with you. I want complete restoration of relational integrity based on faithfulness. That's what I'm looking for. Jesus goes on in John chapter 17, verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and notice this, have loved me, loved them as you have loved me. This has got to be one of the mountaintops of scripture. Jesus literally says here that God the Father loves you and me, rebellious fallen sinners, quarantined to a planet in isolation and rebellion. Jesus says that God loves you and me with the same quality and passion of love with which he loves the sinless Jesus. God loves you as he loves me, Jesus says. There is no difference in the quality of this love. God is love. And then Jesus comes to the conclusion of his prayer. Father, notice the language. Notice the passion of the language. Notice that it's not sterile. Notice that it's not distant. Notice that it is the language of desire. And Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be, what does he want? with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. What is that glory? For you loved me before the foundation of the world. That's the glory of God. Ellen White 
wraps language around this, and she says that it is the glory of God to give, to love. That is the essence of his glory, of his character. God is the ultimate servant, living for others above and before himself. Jesus says, you and I had this going on before the world began, before the foundation of the world. Father, you loved me and I loved you with this perfect other-centered love and Father, let's bring them into that union. Let's, let's restore them to relationship with ourselves so that they can experience this love. Oh, righteous Father, he closes. The world has not what? It's not known you. But I have known you. You and I, we're connected. We're tight. We're in union. I know you. You know me. They don't know this beautiful relationship. They haven't accessed it. I know. You know. But notice this. And these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and I will declare it. Notice this. That, or so that, or in order that, or to the end that. The love with which you, Father, have loved me may be where? In them and I in them. That's the atonement. That's salvation. Salvation is God re-inducting fallen human beings into the relational integrity of other-centered love with himself, with his Son, and with the Holy Spirit. The circle of relational faithfulness was broken, and Jesus came to restore relational faithfulness. That's what it's all about, but here's the thing. In order to experience the drawing, transforming power of God's love, we must understand the magnitude of the sacrifice God made for us in Christ. This is one of the key premises of the theology of the Apostle Paul. In other words, because we are free moral agents and love can only be rendered in the exercise of freedom. Are you with me so far? Because we're free and love can only be exercised in freedom. It is absolutely vital, Paul teaches, that God approach us on the level of communication. He is going to give us a revelation, a demonstration, a manifestation of his love, and then leave us free to respond. So Paul says that the love of Christ must be comprehended in Ephesians 3 in order for it to access us. We have a mind, we have a heart, we're rational and we are emotive and we are volitional creatures. We think, we feel, and we choose. And so God must of necessity approach us at the level of our rational, emotional, and free will process by revealing his love so that we can say yes or no to it. And the cross is that revelation and we vitally need to understand it. Now, this is where Listen very carefully, I, I, I want to make this clear. As seven, I'm speaking to you now as Seventh-day Adventists, as fellow Seventh-day Adventists. This is precisely where Babylon has done its most dastardly work. This is precisely where the enemy of souls has done his quote-unquote finest diabolical work. By palming off on the world, the doctrine of natural immortality and eternal torment 
Satan has effectively blocked the theological perception of the masses of Christianity from perceiving what actually happened at the cross. And Seventh-day Adventists were given, among other points in its incredible doctrinal package that God has graciously given to this people, among other things, God gave us the truth about death, the state of the dead doctrine, and the truth about hell, negating eternal torment and opening, therefore, a passageway of understanding into what happened at Calvary. The Bible says Jesus died for us. What does that mean? Well, if you believe in natural immortality and eternal torment, you cannot possibly access what went on in the heart and mind of Jesus at the cross because all you can see is an outwardly imposed torture that's going to be inflicted. And you don't understand death in terms of the contrast between first and second death. Seventh-day Adventists stand alone with this theological perception, this biblical perception, I'm going to add, that there is more than one kind of death. There is what we call the first death and what we call by contrast the second death. This is language that theologically, rationally, the evangelical Protestant and Catholic mind doesn't even know what to do with this language. But we know from Scripture that there are two different kinds of death. Now follow this carefully. In Revelation 2 and verse 11, we're told, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by what? The second death. Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, again, blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power. Follow carefully. If there is linguistically, logically, a second death, there is of necessity what we might call a first death. As Seventh-day Adventists, we understand that the first death is merely, what is the word that Scripture uses repeatedly? It is merely a sleep. The dead know not anything. They lie in the grave awaiting the resurrection. But then there is, by contrast, something called the second death. What is it? Jesus, describing the second death, do not fear those who kill what dimension of the human being? The body, just the physical body. Don't fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy, note the transition in the language, both soul and body in hell. Jesus here in a single sentence draws the contrast between first and second death. First death is merely the killing of the body, but the second death, oh, wait a minute. This encompasses not only the body, but the soul. And the word that Jesus uses here for soul, that is here English, soul, is in the Greek, psyche. He's referring to the inner dimension, not just the body, but the thoughts, the feelings, the identity, the character, the totality of one's being that resides in the character, the mind, the heart, the psyche. This is the second death. And it's a death from which, by implication and explicitly stated elsewhere in Scripture, it is a death from which there is not to be anticipated a resurrection. This is a death, this is what, this is what we as Adventists call annihilationism in contrast to eternal torment. Eternal, conscious, ongoing torment, okay? Now, What we see in Scripture is that Jesus came into this world, 
And he took upon himself our human nature, and in taking our human nature upon himself, listen carefully now, because I'm going to have to turn the, 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 the speed, I'm going to have to put the pedal to the metal here, because some of you look hungry. Okay, so listen very carefully as we move forward. Jesus came to our world, and by virtue of the incarnation, he submitted himself to a set of limitations, okay, that would make the second death a living reality for him. According to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9, he, we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. For, why was he made lower? Why was he incarnate? For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste what? Death for how many people? For all human beings. Jesus is tasting what death? He is tasting not merely the first death, because logically, theologically, if we can only be saved from whatever Jesus endured for us. If Jesus only endured the first death, then he only has made provision to save us from the first death. But Jesus, saving us for eternity and giving eternal life, Jesus has saved us by his grace by tasting the full horrific reality of the second death. Now, Philippians, is somebody trying to stop me? Okay, Philippians, I just heard a door over there. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. Here, I'm going to just compress the idea for the sake of time this morning, all right? In Philippians 2, we see the incarnation and the cross and the relation between the two. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but what does this version say, verse 7? Made himself of no reputation. The word there is kinoo in the Greek, which is the verb tense or the verb version of the noun kenosis, which just means to empty. And so the NIV translates this, the one who was in very nature God made himself nothing. Another version says he emptied himself. Whatever the content of Jesus was prior to the, his incarnation, he emptied himself for our salvation. The Phillips translation translates this, he laid aside his divine prerogatives and advantages. In other words, Jesus, who was always and only ever divine, sharing the divine attributes of omnipotence, omnipresence, and omniscience, when he came to our world in the incarnation, he submitted himself to the limitations of laying aside, emptying himself, laying aside his divine advantages and prerogatives. Jesus laid aside omnipotence for our salvation, put it in remission, if you will. I can of mine own self, he said, do nothing. Everything you see Jesus doing is as a human being tapping into the omnipotence of the Father. He said of himself regarding omniscience, I don't even know the day and the hour of my second coming. Only the Father knows. Jesus has submitted to the limitations of laying aside his omniscience. Why? Omnipresence. He laid it aside. Why? Well, here's the truth of the matter. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross. This is Paul building a bridge theologically between the incarnation and the cross. 
He's saying Jesus became human and submitted to all of its limitations in order that he might authentically, genuinely experience the death of the cross. Jesus, in other words, did not hang between heaven and earth and with his omniscience and omnipresence transcend the sufferings of the event. Now, in evangelical and Catholic theology, that's the only sense they can make of it. In other words, when Jesus is quote-unquote suffering in general Protestant and Catholic theology, it's a projection. It's not a reality. He's not really suffering. Jesus is merely giving a show of suffering. But it's not a reality for divinity because there is no sense of the magnitude of the condescension here. But Jesus went all the way down. He became nothing. And as he did, he came to Gethsemane and to the cross and he experienced the full ramifications of the sin problem for you and me. Then Jesus came with them, his disciples, to the place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go pray over there. Now watch this. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful to the point of death. What did Jesus say the difference between the first and the second death was? Do not fear those who kill the, but are not able to kill the, but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus then uses the same language to describe what he's experiencing. When Jesus is in Gethsemane, clutching the cold ground to use the words of Ellen White as if to prevent himself from being drawn farther away from the Father. Jesus in agony in Gethsemane begins to sense this separation and it's real for him. He doesn't transcend the event. He's not with his omnipresence also up in heaven looking down on himself in Gethsemane. He's not with omniscience transcending the event and saying, no biggie, I'll be through this in a few hours or a few days. No, it is big, it's mammoth, it's colossal. Jesus is experiencing the full horrific reality of your sin and mine. And it is creating a psychological veil between himself and the Father. So that when Jesus hangs between heaven and earth and he feels the guilt and the shame of our sin, he feels as though he is being separated from the Father forever. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of how many of us? Of us all. Jesus psychologically, in his soul, in his psyche, psychologically, emotionally, Jesus is bearing the weight of the sin of the whole world, yours and mine included. And as he bears the iniquity of the world, the Bible goes on and says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He shall put him to grief when you make his what? An offering for sin. His soul an offering for sin. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify the many for he shall, how's he going to save us? He shall bear, not on his body, Merely, but in his mind, in his heart, he shall bear their iniquities. In other words, Jesus will experience the full dark horror of human shame and guilt. He will feel what it feels like 
to be separated from God by this huge chasm that sin imposes. And when he feels it, he cries out on Calvary, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus felt as though the Father had receded and he was alone and isolated in sin and guilt. And the resurrection for a sustained period of time was blocked from his perception. Ellen White says it this way, he could not see through the portals of the tomb. Bright hope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave as a conqueror or the restoration of his father's approving smile. No, he's there alone in the darkness, feeling the separation to the nth degree of agony longing for that relationship that he had always known with the Father. But now it was all gone. And the separation was complete. Ellen White describes it this way. Jesus at the cross experienced something that the Father and the Holy Spirit also experienced. She says what we witness there, the epic event of all universal history, was the sundering of the divine powers, that is, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They underwent a sacrifice, a magnitude of self-giving sacrifice for you and me in which they separated. And the Son on the other side of that darkness, unable to bridge the chasm with the hope of resurrection, Jesus literally chose to save you and me at any cost to himself. At any point in the process, he could have called 12 legions of angels to deliver him, he had told Peter. His back isn't against a wall. He's not hanging on that cross because there's no way out. When they mocked him and said, if you're the son of God, Save yourself. Come down. The irony of it is, he could have. But he chose not to. He remained there. And he sunk and plunged into the darkness of that separation by voluntary choice because he literally loved you and me more than his own existence. And this is what Paul calls love that passes knowledge. It soars beyond mere intellectual computation. You have to experience it by faith. Believe that God loves you like that and it will take you to a whole new realm of relationship with him. And you will know in your own soul the reality of atonement. You will see in Jesus the creator of the universe on bended knee proposing marriage and you will be willing in the spontaneity of your returning love for him, you will be willing to say yes to his proposal. Yes, Lord, this morning. Yes, we accept your love for us. In Jesus' name. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, 
Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.